Hello, Swillians. Well, today we're visiting not one, but three of the greatest stories from Surfing World Issue 328, also known as the Fiji 2012 edition. Few surfers will forget the swell event that bombarded Cloudbreak on June 8th of that year. A rare combination of swell, tide and wind that formed off Antarctica, funneled up through the Tasman and unloaded onto the Thundercloud Reef in Fiji, smack bang in the middle of the then ASP-sanctioned Vulcan Fiji Pro. Man, it was a wild fucking day, which I happened to watch most of from a boat in the channel alongside my good friend and colleague, Sean Doherty, and most of the 44 who didn't want a bar of it. Even at the time, with every set breaking bigger and more perfect than the set before, we knew that this was going to be remembered as one of the great days in surfing history. But most of the surfers were hopelessly undergunned, having not prepared for such a swell event. And so the day, barring a few guys who did manage to borrow boards, uh, CJ and Damo Hobgood, Ace Bucken, Josh Kerr was out there, Mick and Joel had a stab at it, John John was out there, he was like 19 years old, Yaden Nickel and the Gadowskis brothers, and a couple of others, but really the day was handed over to the big wave Daves, who'd flown in from all over the world the night before, packing maniacal froth and rhino chasers galore. So first up, we're going to hear Sean Doherty's story, Limitless, which is an overview of the day as it unfolded from the uh, six to eight foot morning wash-throughs, which Joel Parkinson described as tsunami-like in power. And you could really feel that something was brewing, even just in the feel of the ocean that morning, right through to the game-changing late afternoon session that featured Probably the most consistent and perfect passage of 25-foot cone wrangling in history. Um, Shawno's second story is The Call. How and why the ASP passed up the opportunity to send their best into the maw of this, you know, once-in-a-lifetime event. It is mad shit. And you've got to wonder what Fred Hemmings, Rabbit Bartholomew, Mark Richards... Guys who redefined competitive surfing by paddling out in some of the most memorable events in history. You know, what did they make of that move? Um, yeah, this, this issue and these stories were put together literally on the island. And so uh, we got home and just bundled it into Surfing World and chucked it all out as a cover-to-cover special edition. So uh, we never got to actually call those guys, but probably worth revisiting them. In, uh, in future episodes of Ain't That Swell. Finally, for something uh, a little more lighthearted, we wrap things up with my own story about nearly getting killed by the wave of the swell. Yep, the one with Mark Hilly's board suspended in the air, 80 foot above the pit, while some bald idiot with a moustache scratching on the inside, screaming like a six-year-old having a night terror and churning up the lineup with raw sewage. <laughs> Fun stuff. Definitely a weird feeling to watch footage or see photos of yourself and honestly think you were going to die at that moment. But um, anyway, yeah, far out. The greatest stories never told. Fiji edition. Fantasies. 
whole thing swells Them who knows them Seven tales On distant reefs On fatal shores Heroes and heroines From days of yore They live on the fringes Pack mondo cones Orbs of mortal conequence Pulverizing bones Adventures and nightmares For young and old These are the greatest stories Never Limitless, how one day of huge cloud break changed the surfing world forever, by Sean Doherty. Which way to pipeline? Dave Wassell is swimming to his boat in the channel, cackling maniacally, trailing what's left of his nine-footer. The Hawaiian, along with every one of the 30 or so other surfers in the cloud break lineup, has just been cleaned up by the first serious set of the new swell. The wave deposited itself in an impossibly straight line from the top of the reef to the channel, and the surfers confronted with it could only penguin dive for the bottom in an effort to save themselves. Once the set is spent, the inside of the reef is littered with busted and tombstoning sticks, and one by one, their owners break the surface, all desperately gulping air like fish in a boat. It was a rude awakening, as they'd been asleep in bed just half an hour before. Joel Parkinson is amongst them, and after swimming back to the boat, he comments that the ocean doesn't feel like any ocean he's felt before. That didn't feel like a wave. That thing surged like a tsunami. The day had only just begun. By dusk, Fiji's cloud break would be twice as big, clean as a whistle, and delivering a cornucopia of waves the likes of which no one previously imagined could even exist. I don't know if you could even dream up waves like that, ponders Hawaiian Mark Healy. Those barrels were so big and so long. They were more like video games. On Namotu Island, Friday, June 8th, dawned under a lead blanket of cloud and was announced by a peal of thunder from parts not far away. A lightning bolt had struck just off the back of neighbouring Tabarua Island. And if the day wasn't ominous enough already, it was now. Looking out the back of Namotu, through the rain, out towards cloud break, the grey sky and a grey sea merged with only a faint white pluming line separating them. There were waves out on the reef. Clutching cups of java and staring through the heavy morning, we watched the left out front of the Motu falling in slow motion 50-yard sections. Across the channel, Wilkes Pass is convinced at Sunset Beach. The morning has an unsettling feel as the first boats head out over the reef. The previous night's Honolulu to Nadi red-eye flight must have had 10-footers strapped to the wings as dozens of big wave and pipe specialists have materialised. It is a repeat of the 2005 contest here in Fiji, when a huge swell hit smack bang in the middle of the waiting period and Laird Hamilton showed up unannounced on Namotu the night before the swell. He sat down to dinner with us, stacked three plates of food and wordlessly began shoveling it into his face. There might have been decorative plastic fruit amongst it, and he might as well have just pushed the Bain Marie into his room and locked the door. There's no Laird this time around, but in his place are guys that will surf the place just as hard without the help of machines. The paddle boys are in town, and these guys don't show up by accident. 
the size of the storm and also the pre-existing ocean state, states Mark Healy, of the reason why he's here. Plus, the two systems before this one were hooking closer and closer to the Tasman. The ones before it ran right into the south end of New Zealand. So I could tell it wanted to start tracking up through the Tasman. And the forecast was telling us this one was going to go straight up the pipe, straight at Fiji. And then there was also that local storm off the east coast of Australia that already had the water moving. The neighbouring resort islands of Namotu and Tavarua both had no vacancy signs up. So Healy had boated out at dawn with a bunch of guys from the mainland where they were staying at a local backpackers. He jokes about surfing the next day in a Bula Fiji tank top with cornrows in his hair. Early morning when we first got out there, they were the cleanest lines I've ever seen a cloud break, he says. Flawless from beginning to end. Every set that came in was uniformly separated and just peeled off down the reef perfectly, without sectioning off. Unlike Healy and Wassell, who have both worked as lifeguards on Tavarua, Greg Long had never surfed cloud break before. Never even seen it. The Eddie I Cow winner from San Clemente has kept a detailed log of swell data from last July's Bluebird Cloud Break Day. And when the numbers for this swell started matching up, he booked a ticket with his brother Rusty. His timing was impeccable. That was the very first morning I'd ever seen the cloud break lineup. The first waves I saw that morning, before it got big and started breaking on the outer ledge, were some of the most perfect things I've ever seen. 15 to 20 foot faces, barreling for 15 seconds. We all got out there and had one or two from the get-go. Then each set started building, till you started getting some wash-throughs from the outer ledge. For a first day, it was the most incredible thing you could hope for. Trial by fire. You can't complain about walking right in and it being too big and too perfect. Then the boys came out and started a couple of heats, and that was when the swell went to the next notch. A mix of inner and outer ledge, and it only got bigger from there. When the Vulcan Fiji Pro was cautiously called on late in the morning, and two heats were surfed without loss of life, but with the loss of Rayoni Montero's knee ligaments, it began to look like it might be a watershed day for the sticker boys, consigning the best big wave surfers in the world to spectators as the contest took over the lineup. My brother and I talked about the chance of this happening before I left for Fiji, recalls Maui's Ian Walsh. He said, best case, you get barreled out of your mind. Worst case, you sit by the pool drinking cocktails with Healy and Greg and the boys. I went, fuck, you're right, I'm going. When they called the contest on, I was like, Okay, well, there's my worst-case scenario. Sitting in the boat, cheering the boys on. Whatever happened, I was happy. I was in Fiji. But it definitely got too big for the equipment they had down there. If they ran the contest, I was going to put a sign in my boat in the channel. Eight O's for rent. 10% commission for sure. And if you break it, you buy it. But then, cloud break drew a line in the sand. It was the first set to break on the second ledge, and it looked like nothing before it. There were two waves in the set, and Nathan Fletcher was the only surfer to even look at either of them. He wheeled his lime green 1010 around, dropped his head and paddled for the first wave. But these things were not meant to be ridden. Nate's wave had a lip that began three quarters of the way up its face. It looked, in many ways, more like Chopu than Cloudbreak. Watching from the channel, Kalara Alexander says, I don't know if I wanted Nate to catch that wave or not. You paddle a 1010 into anything and the wave catches you. But I think he was lucky it didn't. The mood in the lineup has changed as Nate returns to his boat in the channel and smokes a cigarette. That set and the prospect of it getting even bigger has taken the wind out of the pro surfers' sails. Well, most of them anyway. Part 2 I'm sitting watching sets with John John Florence on the bow of the Belle Marie. His natural grommet instinct to be excited by a perfect surf is tempered only slightly by the fact that this perfect surf is 20 feet. Distracted for a minute, I turn to find him gone. Next thing, I see a green, yellow and orange board screaming through the guts of a biggin from way up the reef. The kid is out there and will be all afternoon on his 7-2, 
jockeying deep in the pack, thinking he's surfing impossibly perfect phantoms back home. The contest, meanwhile, has been called off. Ace Bucken, who was due to surf against John John if the contest had been called back on, borrows a 7-4 and paddles out as well, but not before ringing his shaper from the boat and ordering a 9-0 on the spot, then and there. The wind was kind of funky at that stage, says Ian Walsh, but I knew the swell was supposed to peak at midnight that night, so it was still rising, and I knew it was going to be pretty substantial by late afternoon. And that's just about when the wind dropped off and it went sheet glass and turned into something else. The swell kept rising, but the extreme southerly aspect to it meant the Cloudbreak Reef was holding it easily. There were no hints of the medieval feel of the Tahiti session last year. It almost looked, God forbid, fun. It looked like the most playful three-foot barrels you've ever surfed, only they were six times overhead. It just felt like 20-foot macaronis, offers Walsh. As a primal battle between man and ocean ensues, the contest boat does its best to ruin the solemn ambience by pumping disco cheese across the lineup at 110 decibels. The surfers sit on boards north of eight feet, clustered tight like they're sitting on the boil at Waimea. Between sets, no one moves in the tropical afternoon heat. They wait, herded together now, out on the second ledge, like wildebeest on the savannah, the noses of their boards hanging heavy. Then the set comes, and they suddenly break. Some deep, some wide, some for the horizon and some in for the ledge. Ian Walsh drops into the first wave of the set and catches a wave he later describes as a 20-foot closeout that just didn't close out. Chilean Ramon Navarro takes the second, avoids a guillotine lip and winds up in a tube big enough to have its own postcode. Damo Hobgood, sitting on the west bowl as he has all day, swoops on the last wave and pulls up soul-arched into a barrel that would have won him his heat, if he was indeed surfing one. He kicks out next to Ramon. The pair high-five and scream at each other, their faces six inches apart. There's an hour to dark, and it's only just getting started. The Pacific now has real cadence. It's moved out onto Cloudbreak's third ledge, a part of the reef that most of the guys in the water didn't even know existed up until this point. There's the wave Wassel caught. There's the wave Reef caught. And then there's the wave that caught Healy. I think everyone out there would agree, says Ian Walsh. That wave that came through that no one rode, the one that Healy had to bail under, was like nothing we've ever seen. Being so close to that wave and just feeling the energy was rad. There were a lot of big waves that day, but that was the only wave that tore up the bottom. After it broke, the water was almost sandy. It was like a Porto sandbar. The wave hit the reef so hard it was shooting sand up. The lineup pulses as the sun sinks towards Castaway Island in the west. The same 25-foot third ledger that almost ended Healy then rolls through two miles of open ocean before wrapping around the back of Tavarua and into restaurants, unloading a 10-footer onto the low-tide reef, annihilating everyone who thought they'd taken the safer option by surfing there and not cloud break. Among them is Stephen Bell, Kelly's caddy, who not only loses his brand-new board, but gets dragged out to sea in the grade 5 rip the set has created. He swims for 25 minutes as Tavarua starts to shrink in the distance only for a boat to pull up beside him and ask what he's doing when he tries to climb in. Eventually convinced he's in genuine trouble and not doing a spot of recreational inter-island freestyle, they let him climb aboard. The swell, increasingly bountiful as the afternoon goes on, delivers guys the waves of their lives. It was hard to know what was going on at the time, says Walshy, because you're out the back and you just hear hoots and whistles from the boats. Sometimes you'd be out the back and see a guy drop in and go, well, he's never going to make that. And then you'd see him jump over the back 200 yards down the line. It felt like at any minute, the best wave any of us had ever seen could come through. 
and as nuts as you wanted to go, you could go. But those two waves that came through and I was out of position, even if I was in position, I wouldn't have gone. But that was what was so great about the day. As big as you wanted to go, you could go. The swell hasn't peaked, and whatever it's throwing at the reef, the reef is handling. Nothing closes out. I think it could handle anything, that reef, offers Mark Healy. Kai Garcia and Jamie Mitchell, the contest ski drivers, have stuck around all afternoon plucking surfers off the reef. The waves are coming flawlessly off the South Pacific production line, and the guys making the drop are almost universally making the barrel that follows. But screw up the drop, and the sunshine and swaying palm trees quickly disappear. When it's big, you really see how heavy that place is, says Ian Walsh. Long, violent hold downs. And the second wave in the set, and the third wave, you don't get pushed in. You get pushed down the reef, and it doesn't lose any size as you get pushed down the line. If you fall on a 15, 20-foot wave, you get pounded until you're just about done. Then the next wave hasn't lost any momentum when it hits you. It keeps pushing you into a worse spot for every wave of the set until you end up on dry reef. Welcome to Fiji. Bula. As the sun bleeds out and the last few waves of the day are ridden backlit against the twilight, a warm buzz bathes the channel. The two hours before sunset have taken surfing into a fresh dimension and the boat ride back to the island across a glass ocean with a flying fish escort offers the first chance for reflection. That was without question the best big wave I've ever surfed, says Greg Long. We've surfed taller waves, we've surfed slabbier waves, but find me another 20-foot wave in the world that barrels like that for 25 seconds and I'll pay you a million bucks for a ticket. A wave technically doesn't get better than that for size. And it's not like Tahiti where the sets come in at that size and you can't catch them. They were there for the taking. It was definitely one of the most historic days in big wave surfing. You can sit here and try and dream up a better scenario, but I wish you good luck. That was as good as big waves will ever get. And the guys surfed them as well as they could be surfed. And who knows when it'll happen again. Could be next decade. Could be next week. The Call How Pro Surfing Turned Its Back on 20 Foot Perfection by Sean Doherty. Ten minutes before the gnarliest clutch heat of his young life, Adam Melling walked past me on the luxury catamaran Belle Marie, drinking a coconut through a straw. Iry shuffling with earbuds in place, looking a little too relaxed, current circumstances considered. Cloudbreak had been getting bigger since dawn, and there were now 15-foot sets, and it was flirting with the second ledge. Melling was the guinea pig. He was about to paddle out in the first heat of the day against B. Derbage, jousting the beasties with his 6-8 toothpick. A baying and bloodthirsty broadcast audience watched on, as did a legion of the world's most fearless big wave riders who were all in the channel. It was a day to be seized. No pressure, son. Volcom's Richard Woolcott, the architect of the tour's return to Fiji, was sitting on the nose of the marshalling boat as Bede paddled past. The boat erupted and Woolley yelled out, We're with you, Bede, before returning to his seat and whispering, From right here on the boat. The big wave specialists who have been surfing it all morning paddle in one by one. And suddenly Bede and Mello find themselves alone out there. Very alone. Bede has Abe, the tour chaplain, caddying for him. More so for his qualification to administer last rites than his knowledge of the second ledge at Cloudbreak. It was a pretty wild experience, said Bede after the heat. I had butterflies and everyone cleared out 
And me and Mel just looked at each other and we're like, is this happening? Are we even in the right spot here? Having guys out there before us on 10 O's was kind of heavy. There were a lot of factors that had you shitting yourself out there. And then Mel got cleaned up. I was right beside him and I started stroking as fast as I could. And he was next to me stroking as fast as he could. Matt Wilkinson was watching on from the channel as Melling paddled for his life. He's either going to be sweet or not. The wave passed and Melling disappeared. Not sweet is my guess. Both guys gave the heat a real dig though and get a rousing reception when they made it back to the boat. Speed wins, but on a day like today, you'll be judged on more than the numbers. Kai Otten and Rayoni Montero are next. Both are on borrowed boards. Otto is on Dean Bowen's 7-2, Rayoni on Kalar Alexander's 8-0. And apart from Kelly, who's had three nine-footers shipped to Fiji, everyone else in the contest will be forced to borrow boards. No one was ready for this. In the past, whenever cloud rate got to this size, you simply moved to the best backup venue on tour, restaurants. But all morning, the best big wave surfers demonstrated in real time just how much the paradigm had changed out here. Cloudbreak is now regarded as the most sublime big wave paddle reef in the world, and it can be surfed at real size. Otto and Rayoni plumbed up. It cost Rayoni his left knee and Otto a hold down so deep he contends he suffered the bends. But both are carted away by the meat wagon with their heads held high. This was the last heat of the second round and with the northerly devil win the strongest it had been all day, the contest went on hold. At this stage, everyone in the first six heats of the next round assumed they were going to surf. I got there just as Kai got his last wave and it was big, recalls Mick Fanning. I was thinking, okay, time to man up. And that's when it happened. At 12.56pm, the horizon lurched and at the top of the point, suddenly there it was. A top to bottom, rogue 20-footer that looked nothing like anything that had broken before it. Nathan Fletcher didn't even get close to paddling into it on a 10-10, recalls Mick, who was watching on. I just went, whoa. The whole vibe changed right then and there. Everyone was like, oh shit. Everyone suddenly knew it was serious. The call was to be made at 2pm and it was a nervous hour for the eight guys who were due to surf. The rogue 20-footers soon became regular 20-footers. The swell was clearly still building, and there was a big decision to make. Pragmatic and cool-headed, Matt Wilson has been running surf contests for 15 years, but has never had to face a day like this. His phone ran white hot. He spoke with head judge Richie Porter on the tower in the lagoon. Richie is leaning towards pushing on. He says his boys are happy to keep judging heats but concedes the decision ultimately needs to be made on the boat and more crucially by the guys who have to surf it. Matt spoke to Volcom's Richard Woolcott, who is happy to go with whatever call is made. Volcom are on a win-win. Contest or not, they will have a kick-ass broadcast as the cameras will keep rolling if the big wave guys take over the lineup. Matt called Tavarua's John Roseman, the guy who knows Cloudbreak better than anyone. He's worried about the devil wind and doesn't know if it will back off. Matt saw clearly in his mind the most compelling reason why this shouldn't run. He doesn't want to lose someone on his watch. No one has a board over seven foot. No one has life vests. The swell isn't close to peaking, and it could and will be anything by dark. Plus, there are five days of solid swell still predicted for the waiting period. And he knows he has the cream of the world's best big wave surfers locked and loaded, sitting in the channel, itching to surf a place like it should be surfed. Mark Healy is one of them, and is using the Jedi mind trick to get this thing called off. I was really hoping that mid-sized cloud break would take the wind out of their sails. Plus, the wind was being a little funny. The transition from first ledge at cloud break to the second ledge, it has to be a lot bigger. 
And when it's breaking between ledges, there are a lot of cleanup sets and it's not as hollow and a lot more difficult to surf. I was hoping that would be enough to get it called off because I knew it would get bigger late in the afternoon. And so it came down to the surfers. On the back deck of the Belle Marie, Abid and Taj Burrow will surf the first heat, along with Ace Bucken and Mick Fanning, who would both surf if the contest ran. Just as the surfers weren't ready for the eventuality of surfing Cloudbreak at this size, they seem caught short when it comes to making a call on whether to surf it or not. Surfers rep Kieran Perro, a guy with few qualms in this kind of surf, and the guy who'd been there to call the contest on that morning, was off surfing Tavaroa rights at the time. On the Belle Marie, meanwhile, there was only one firm case being offered either way, and that was Matt Wilson's. At 2pm, Matt put it to the four assembled surfers. I want to call it off for the day. Are you guys happy for me to do it? They all agreed, and the contest was officially off. The continuing devil wind was cited as the official reason, but the building swell and the chance of someone coming to grief was the real driver. Even though the wind is yet to swing offshore and the swell yet to really kick in, Matt knows immediately he will be remembered as the guy who walked away from this day but privately is happier to accept that instead of having a badly injured or lost surfer on his conscience. And so, Plan B swings into action. 30 of the world's best big wave surfers paddle out and the world gets one hell of a show for three hours. I think in hindsight, it was the right call, states Mick Fanning, who paddled out to free surf soon after the contest was called off. It wasn't a matter of people sitting there and being pussies. It was a matter of life and death. I felt like an idiot being in the lineup paddling around out there not quite sure of where I should be and in a competition you push it that much harder because you're so psyched someone could have got seriously hurt once you had a clock and a scoreboard if everyone had life vests and the right boards I'd say let's do it but no one fathomed it was going to be that big you know if it was the same size as when Bede and Mello and Kai and Rayani surfed then cool let's do it but it just kept growing and I think the people who made the decision I think Matt Wilson was looking more from a safety and liability view and I think it was the smart decision and you could have been wasting the best big wave day anywhere in 10 years on guys getting caught inside. It's like plucking Sean White from a half pipe and dropping him on top of a mountain in Alaska with no avalanche beacon and the wrong board and saying, off you go. I was in touch with them all day on the call, recalls John Roseman. It was super controversial when they called it off, but it was the right decision at the time, no doubt. It had 10 knots of north wind blowing straight into it and surfing into that bump when it's big out there is almost impossible. No one was to know it was going to get glassy an hour later. Plus, I don't know how many waves they would have got out there. The big wave guys were relieved. It was one of those days we dream and fantasise about, says Greg Long. So having to sit and watch from the channel would have been a tough one for us to swallow. But we have the utmost respect for those guys, so if they'd run the contest, we would have sat there and cheered them on. But I think if you look across the whole event and the waves everyone's got, in the bigger picture, surfing was the winner on the day. But the decision, just as it was received by the surf fans, also split the surfers themselves. Seriously? We should have surfed, said Parker. I was asking last night why we didn't take that opportunity. The bottom line for me was that all surfers would have had the chance to get two of the best waves of their lives in a heat, in the best conditions you've ever seen. I think it's a huge missed opportunity. Six of the eight guys who would have surfed heats if the contest had run paddled out and surfed anyway. But it's what wasn't said on the boat when the decision was made that was most troubling. There was a way the contest could have run that afternoon, but it needed someone to grab the day by the scruff of the neck. Someone needed to frame the big picture, but no one did. Nobody spoke up for surfing. If someone had just climbed the spiral staircase on the Bell Murray and delivered a fiery locker room speech about how much pro surfing needed this day, about how this afternoon was a once-in-a-lifetime gift, about how Tom and MR would have surfed, 
about how just four heats of guys standing inside flawless 20-foot barrels could have marked the dawn of a new era for pro surfing, silencing a generation of critics and creating a new high watermark for the game that would have been talked about for decades, like the 74 Smirnoff, Bells in 81 and the 86 Billabong Pro. But no one did. It seemed the waves they were confronted with and the gravity of the situation had everyone looking squarely at the man in the mirror and no one climbed the mountain and looked down from above. The idea of surfing heats might still very well have been voted down, but the fact nobody broached any of this is a disconcerting affair. And so while surfing was the winner on the day, how can it not be when guys are being barreled in perfect 25-foot surf and it's being broadcast live to the world? Pro surfing comes out of this a loser. No one will give the ASP too much credit for the two heats they did run, but they'll be tarred and feathered for the four they didn't. The response online to the call being made was as predictable and splenetic as it was instantaneous, and Monday's experts were already teeing off early on the Friday afternoon. They can be a tough crowd. Run three hours of next-level big wave surfing live to the world from a remote corner of the Pacific and ask them, are you not entertained? And great swathes of them will say, actually, no, we're not. Send Medina out. But there was a chance there on that day for pro surfing to turn every one of them into believers. And that chance has now gone. But maybe the most telling barometer of whether this was the right call or not lies with the greatest surfer of all time. A guy who has won the eddy. A guy with more experience on this wave than anyone in the field. A guy with a very short list of things still to prove. Kelly Slater, who last July experienced firsthand just how dangerous cloud break can be at this size, didn't even paddle out that Friday afternoon. Man... It was great, he said a few days later after winning the contest. But it seemed like everyone focused on the downside. They could have run four, maybe five heats that day. And even the big wave guys all said it was the right thing without having the equipment. And then only having two guys in the lineup, it would have been really confronting for those two guys. But like most everyone involved, it's clear Kelly is still wrestling with that day and whether the right call was made. But hey, everyone would have gone out there and done their best and got a few waves. Just that somebody might have drowned, that's all. But if the heat's on, you've got to go. What's become clear out of all this is that if they're faced with the same situation again, and my lord, I hope they are, both the surfers and the ASP need to be better equipped to deal with it. But for now, it's done. We'll never know. For while the day has disappeared on the wind and we may never see the likes of it again, the pang of regret lingers. And as the saying goes, it's better to regret something you have done than to regret something you haven't. Pro surfing will have to live with that. Would everyone have stepped up with the whole world watching? Asked Parco. We won't know. The line and the line. Folly of the average man on the day that cloud break roared. I saw a lion up close in Africa. I was at the lion enclosure at a game reserve. I walked over to a giant fence that was about 20 foot high. The lions lived on the other side of it. The fence was not very impressive. It was made of wire squares. Man, you could fit your head through one of those squares, I said out loud to myself. I wouldn't do that if I were you, Brew, said a park ranger who happened to hear me. The fence has quite a bit of electricity running through it, and the big cat can move pretty quick when he wants to. Yeah, I was just saying is all. I walked over to where an adult male lay on the grass. The big cat sat quietly. A gust of wind teased his mane. He didn't look at me as I approached. He looked like he was trying to remember something. I stood no more than a few feet from him. I took in the size of his paws and the mass of his skull. 
I looked at the muscles twitching under his pelt, warding off the tsetse flies. I watched the flick of his tail, and it made a heavy sound on the air. It sounded like if he whipped you with that tail, it'd hurt. Might even leave a bruise. The lion yawned. His teeth were huge, and his gape immense. I knew that this animal could kill me easily. I would provide little resistance compared to even his tamest prey. Chased down and clamped in his jaws, my bones would explode into splinters, and my blood would spill onto the grass. He'd stand over my lifeless remains as the rightful king of the jungle, and I, I'd be as dead as dead can be. But that would never happen. I was perfectly safe. And I knew I was perfectly safe because of that thin, electrified line. It was a line that separated man from man-eater, a line I would have no cause to cross. Not now, not ever. We may have only been a few feet apart, but the lion and I were in entirely different worlds. Worlds, I believed, would never converge. And then I went to Fiji. Today, the surf was massive, like 20 foot. Proper 20 foot surf, bigger even. I saw shit I still cannot believe. I watched from a boat in the channel from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. I watched six foot men ride 10 foot boards through 20 foot cones. I watched and I watched. Nathan Fletcher was out in the morning on a 10-10. When he paddled past Ace Bucken, Ace said he felt like an ant. Melling and Bede and Otto and Rayoni surfed two heats in the biggest waves I've ever seen for an ASP comp. Warriors. Hellmen. Lambs to the slaughter. Two heats, and that was that. The event went on hold. And then they called it off. Too dangerous, they said. Wrong wind, they said. But still, the free surfers surfed it. And I watched and watched. I sat and saw the craziest tube rides to ever go down, man. Ian Walsh got an 18-second, 18-foot pit. Reef McIntosh rode a tube so big, it popped my ears when it spat him into the channel near our boat. Pat Gadowskis fell from the sky sideways and somehow stuck it long enough not to get pulverised into dust. Ramon Navarro tail-wheelied his way over a foam ball to make the deepest pit of the day. Of any day. In history, even. It seemed like every moment redefined the one before. Every wave raised the bar. The swell was picking up. And I watched. And I watched. At about 3.30, a strange thought occurred to me. I thought, maybe I should watch from the water. I had the desire to suck up some more energy of the day. I wanted to hear the banter of the big wave surfers. What did they talk about between sets? Inflatable wetsuits? Oxygen canisters? Laird Hamilton superfoods? I wanted to hear that shit. And I also wanted to feel the swells, the weight of history moving through me. There had been no cleanup sets and no wash-throughs. The swell was true to the line of the reef, and that line was as clear to see as the electric fence at a line enclosure. I knew on which side of this line I belonged, the side with no man-eaters. The swell was true, and I felt safe. I borrowed a 7-0 from an Aussie guy named Nick. I dived over the side and into the warm water. Felt soft and inviting. As I paddled towards the pack, sets continued to roll in, and surfers continued to ride inside them. The scale of the waves took on an entirely different dimension. How big was that last one? I don't know. How do you measure a wing of jets flying at you? In speed? In height? In width? In volume? In power? I don't know. It was massive. The whole place was buzzing. Whistles, hoots, cheers, clapping, laughter, swearing, disbelief. 
I saw Josh Kerr and Ace sitting on the edge of the pack. Friendly, familiar faces. I paddled over and sat with them. CJ Hobgood joined us on one of Kelly Slater's 9 O's. Then he quickly turned and stole one that missed the guys out on the ledge. The wave rolled under me. I felt the heavy rain of the spray coming off its roof as it passed. I was in the thick of it, but the line was clear. I felt safe, and I watched. I listened to the banter. It was as warm as the water. This is pumping. This is perfect. Can you believe this? Ian Walsh paddled past, and everyone asked him about his earlier barrel. The talk was familiar. It was surf talk. And then, in an instant, everything changed. The air, the mood, my line. My line, my line had moved. My line had betrayed me. And suddenly I was looking from the wrong side of the fence as the thing rose from deep and from the deep. Top to bottom, heaven to hell, ocean folding in half. Disgusting and incredible and truly frightening. Healy sat deepest. He had a quick look at it and then changed his mind. I watched as he scratched over an avalanche. Then I watched as the biggest big wave hellman in the world scratched over a two. I watched their reaction as they breached the lip and saw the wave behind it. I watched them gunning for the channel. I watched and paddled and watched and paddled. When I reached the top of that first wave, I felt a kick to the chest. What I saw was hard to take in. The entire ocean was going skyward. No matter where I looked, there was rising water. Panic, kids, dry mouth, home, adrenaline, life, sickness, death, the line, my line. Why hast thou forsaken me, the line? I buried my arms to the earlobes. I clawed and scratched and kicked. I put every last bit of energy I had in my body. I had to get back to my side of the line and I feared in the deepest part of me, I wouldn't. The wave doubled up and started projectile vomiting across the deepest part of the reef. I'd never seen anything so big move so fast and so loud. I watched Healy scramble. He was directly in its path. I saw his board go up and over. Did he go with it? If he did, he's dead. I don't know. I couldn't think straight. My mind was only telling me one thing. What have you done? Why are you out here? This is a nightmare. I kicked and clawed and scratched for the line. And then... I was moving up the face, and my entire lifetime of surfing told me I was safe. I had crossed over. The monster had stayed true to the reef, and I was back where I belonged. The natural order of things had been restored. The wave roared as it ran under me, like a lion would roar. And then it was gone, on its way to restaurants, where as an angry ten-footer, it would clean up everyone out there, washing three guys on a dry reef. The entire lineup was screaming and cheering in the wake of that unridden set. Healy had ditched his board and made it through. He was alive and safe. Kai Garcia was already motoring out on the ski to get him. There was celebration in the air, excitement. Kersey and I looked at each other. He was laughing. Fuck, were you scared then, he asked me? I was shitting myself. I didn't come here to die. I came here to watch, I told him. And I've never been more scared in my life. Tonight, photographs of the rogue set began appearing on computer screens in the media room. With Healy's board caught up in the lip, and a very familiar shape to me in the bottom left-hand corner, frantically scratching for life and limb. I had to laugh when I saw it. It's a strange feeling to look at yourself, knowing that at that very moment, you thought you might die. But then, doubts began to surface. Closer examination of the images makes it hard not to admit that maybe I was always wide enough to avoid being eaten alive. And I find myself wondering, did I really cross that line today? Or was I blinded? 
by adrenaline and fear. I can't say for sure, but I know I'm not the only man on this island asking questions of himself tonight. Fantasies, pulsing swells, them who knows them, seven tales, on distant reefs, on fatal shores, heroes and heroines from days of yore. They live on the fringes, pack mondo cones, orbs of mortal conequence, pulverizing bones, adventures and nightmares for young and old. These are the greatest stories never told.